Hello, church. Good morning, church. It is good to see you. I'm going to read a scripture and uh, comes from the New Testament. It comes out of Luke chapter 10. And I'm going to start with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was attacked by robbers. Uh, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw him, he pa passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on to the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. The construction site was right across the, from the hospital, and it was a high-rise, and there were four construction workers on the fourth floor, and right across the street was the hospital, and on the third floor, these men noticed something. There was a little girl, and they could see her hair had been balding from what must have been treatment. And so they had some curiosity about him, and they would wave, and she would wave. They were showing kindness. And she held up a poster that she had made, and she pressed it to the window, and it said, My name is Lisa. What is your name? And the four men were kind of moved in that moment, and so they got a big piece of 
plywood and they spray painted. Our names are Bill, Terry, Bob, and Brad. And she smiled. You know, we have struggles, don't we? Last week we talked about disappointments. The week before that we talked about inconsistencies, lack of faithfulness in our lives. And and the first step in a struggle is to identify it, to name it, and the other is to understand that it's a process, that the very word struggling has an action verb sound to it, that we have not been stuck in the struggle, but that we continue to fight through it. There's some hope for us. And so, we're going to do more than just kind of waller in our struggle. We're going to press through them. We're going to do more than talk about it. And today, I want to share with you on the struggle of indifference. Indifference. Uh, Some could say that it is defined as the loss of passion or concern, uh, motivation to really care. One could say it's disengaging. You know, we see it all about us, don't we? I mean, just this week, I I went up to one of our members and I said, hey, look, I'm I'm going to be speaking on indifference. And they said, look, Tim, I don't have time. I've I've got to go. (laughs) (laughs) It's even in the church. And uh, maybe you heard about the um, conference for the apathetic anonymous. Nobody signed up and nobody showed up. I mean, indifference is a struggle for us because it takes emotional energy to engage. It demands something of us to actually care. What got us to this condition? Well, I have a couple of things. You have your message notes. I invite you to follow along. One is uh, desensitizing content. We're inundated, bombarded with vivid content every day, audibly visually, uh, news reports more and more frequently say this, warning, the caster says, broadcaster says, warning, the images you are about to see may be disturbing, and they are so right. Another terrorist attack over here, another theft and murder over here. And even the entertainment industry has had an effect on us. And I want to suggest to you that there is a desensitizing of us through what is really a gift, and that is media. A photojournalist was telling NPR News a while back that his task was to do an article and do pictures of a coastline area. And while he was doing that, there was a woman in distress, and he was so myopically focused on his task that he didn't realize this woman was in distress, that she was out in the waves, that an undercurrent, an undertow had pulled her, and he continued to shoot. And then he realized she was in stress and distress, and he began to continue to take pictures doing nothing about her plight. And then he finally turned and, and, and yelled at some folks and they jumped in, but it, it, 
was too late. And his confession was, I was obsessed with the task that I ignored one who was near in arm's reach. And so we, we've had a proliferation of violent images and and, and Delia does a good job with this, my wife. She has a strategy to not be overly uh, desensitized to it. Uh, what she does is we'll be in a movie, and there may be a, an action scene, right, that's kind of intense. And, and here's her therapy approach. She takes her forehead and digs it into my shoulder. I'm not going to watch. And I said, baby, it's probably a good thing. You're better for it. It wasn't good. Yeah, so, so, you know, there are messages that are sent to us, and, and I believe that there is a numbing down, if you would, of, of who we are. Even as followers of Christ, we live at warp speed. We live at what feels like faster than the speed of light or sound. And so what happens is we become tone deaf. Our, our ability to, to see and hear is limited to the point where we, we say, you know what, I, I don't really have time to care. There's, there's another uh, way that it happens, and, and that is when we're faced with overwhelming need. There's a name for this. It's called compassion fatigue. I know Jesus must have felt it because when the multitudes would gather and they would bring their brokenness and they would bring their disease and they would bring their loved ones, Jesus must have in his human side, not his deity side, but his human side, must have had compassion fatigue. And yet the Bible says in those settings, he looked at them with compassion. Something greater than himself rose up to care. But those of us who may be in a caring industry or a caring setting, uh, we feel as though the need becomes so great that it's wearisome and we can grow ho-hum to that which is significant in terms of our response and ability to respond. And then the other is a centric worldview where we, we've got ourselves as a point of reference and it really is all about us. It's really about me. Uh, when my kids were younger, uh, we don't get to do this much anymore because one's teaching English in China and uh, one of my, da my daughter is in Asbury University and, and so we don't get to sit around the table like, like we used to. But when we did, uh, if somebody got a little out of hand, if somebody got a little selfish, we kind of made up a song, and the title of it is, It's All About Me, and it's facetious. It's all about me, 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 it's all about me, 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 it's all about me, it's not about you. And so, you know, and, and they got the point, okay? You're getting a little selfish, and, and, and so we have this worldview, and part of this is our fallen state that we we, we disengage because of some selfishness. Whatever the reason is, there is a condition of indifference. And it can be chronic, and it can affect our witness. 
It's interesting, in 2013, Gallup Poll did a survey of approximately 100 million people that are in the workplace, and they're holding full-time jobs. 30% of the people said, indicated, responded with that they are fully engaged and inspired at work, 30. 50% are disengaged to a level, kind of present, but not inspired by work or the leadership. And 20% say, in all honesty, they are actively disengaged. That costs the economy, get this, that costs the economy over $550 billion a year because of mistakes made because of being disengaged. Disengaged employees, this study shows, are more likely to steal from their company, negatively influence their co-workers, miss multiple work days, and drive customers away. Have you ever encountered somebody that's disengaged when they're working? I mean, I can tell from a distance someone who likes their job or doesn't. Now, I know it's tough in the fast food industry, but I got to tell you, when you walk up to a counter, some of these folks look like they're clinically depressed. I mean, can I help you? Yeah. What do you want? I want to say, you know, I could help you. I could help you. Will you engage me? Will you make eye contact? In marriage, a counselor, I was asking him, what is it that contributes to the dissolving of marriage? Is it, is it unfaithfulness? Is it poor communication? Is it finances? And his response was interesting. He said, you know, it could be any of those but those are really symptoms of a much bigger problem. The problem most often that dissolves a marriage is ambivalence. When one or the other ceases to care. And when one ceases to care, the other ceases to care. And there are symptoms of when they cease to care. Maybe they've done something that speaks of unfaithfulness, but it was really a disregard for the other person. But it's when they both check out. Jesus speaks to indifference, doesn't he? And I love what Jesus does because he doesn't just answer. He answers creatively. How do I enter the kingdom of God? How do I enter the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is coming from a law specialist, someone that knows the inside out of the Old Testament as we know it, the Hebraic, Hebraic law. And, uh, and, and, and so he's asking, I want to know from you, what's it going to take for me to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story. There's power in story, isn't there? Oftentimes because we find ourselves in the story. And Jesus tells a parable. 
A man is walking down the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. He is robbed. He is beaten. The scripture tells us, or as Jesus tells the story, he's left for half dead. He's in the ditch. He's at an angle on the side of the road, and a priest comes, and he sees him. And he knows the implications that if he draws near to that body, it will defile him. He may be dead. Surely I don't need to go over there. And so he keeps walking. And then the Levite, one who knows the law as well, looks and takes a gander at the situation and then continues to pass on by. Now, Jesus powerfully uses irony in his parables. And he uses the Samaritan, the half-breed Jew, the outcast, the marginalized as the hero. Because the Samaritan comes and he pours wine and, and disinfects the wound and he wraps it and places it on his animal, takes it to the end, takes that one to the end and says, look, put it on my tab. Whatever is owed, you put it on my account. And Jesus said, now, who do you think was the neighbor? Oh, that flew in the face of everything that the religious leaders would have wanted to hear. A Samaritan as the hero? Come on, Jesus. But even their religion desensitized them. Even their religion. For the priest, he would have had to ceremonially clean himself that would have inconvenienced him. The Levite maybe disengaged or never engaged, was indifferent. He didn't have the time. And yet, what was it about the Samaritan? Maybe he knew what it was to have an infirmity. Maybe not a physical infirmity. Maybe it was a racial infirmity on this Martin Luther King weekend. Maybe it was being an outcast and knowing what it was to be rejected and forgotten and despised and placed low in a caste system. Maybe it was that that allowed him to show compassion. Maybe someone had showed compassion to him. Well, as those who follow Christ I think it's important that we be careful not to let our religion become a desensitizing agent, if you would, to the real needs of the world. And so you've got your message notes. I invite you to follow along. There are a couple of things I think we can, we can say about the process of re-engaging. And, and, and one of those is the, the wonder of the fruit of the Spirit. Somebody said, you know, Tim, the gift of the Spirit is imparted to us. It's a gift. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit has to be developed, has to grow. But the Holy Spirit produces the kind of fruit in our lives, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there are three synonyms, if you would, they kind of overlap, that I believe confronts our indifference. 
One is kindness, one is goodness, and one is gentleness. Kindness for me is, is a mentality. It's, it's, a, it's an understanding and it moves into action. Goodness has to do with the, the virtuousness of us. You see, we believe that we ought to re- remove the vices, the things that are wrong, but put on the virtues. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And, and so we have kindness and goodness and gentleness. Somebody said, you know, you might have the right message, but if you don't have meekness, a humility, gentleness, the message will never be heard. And you think of what Jesus embodied. He embodied all of these three in every encounter that he had. And so, one thing I think is important for us to care again, to re-engage, to feel again, is to ask God to heighten our sensitivity, to allow these fruit to be produced in us, to allow them to mature and be readily available when it's time to show compassion. To open the eyes of my heart as the Hillsong song goes. Uh, To make me aware, to sensitize me to my environment and to the needs around me. And then once that has happened, once I'm able to evaluate and see the need for what it is, then to do something special for someone. You've heard me say it before, that emotion follows motion. Once we step into something, then comes the emotion. Then comes the feeling. But we have to have the faith to step forward. Irma Baumbach, she's deceased. She lost a battle to cancer. But she was um, one who was an editorial writer, syndicated, and, and she told the story about how she was boarding a flight to Chicago. And she had been with people. She was exhausted. She sat down in her designated seat. Uh, Before doing that, she was hanging up her coat and putting some things in the bin above her seat. And a woman who was to sit next to her, who was sitting next to her, said, I bet it's cold in Chicago. And she thought to herself, oh, no. I just wanted to read my book. I just wanted to be by myself. I just wanted to be able to drift off if I wanted to drift off. And she said, yeah, I bet it is. And so the flight began to, to move forward and the wheels were off the ground. And, and she said, yeah, my husband grew up in Chicago. And she said, I just stared at that novel. And she said, she wouldn't stop. And she talked more and more. And then she said, and my husband's body is actually on this flight. He died three days ago. You know, the church has been so good to me. And people have been good, my family. And we're going to take him to his birthplace and bury him at a cemetery in Chicago. And Irma said her heart dropped 
She said she had never been so convicted that all she had to do was listen. He demanded nothing of her physically, financially. It just demanded her attention. And she listened. And as she was coming off the plane after it had landed, she heard the woman say to someone else, I bet it's cold in Chicago. And she said, oh, God, please send someone who will listen better than me. Um, somebody was telling me that they worked in Atlanta and they would commute and, and there were five of the corporate fellas leaving the office one day and it was near five points in Atlanta and sure enough here's the guy with his towel his paper towels and the bottle and wanting to come up and wash the windows in the parking lot before they left and Mike said to me Tim I I knew it was going to rain I uh, I said you don't need to do that it's okay thank you for offering but by the time I get to the perimeter it's going to be raining you're going to be wasting your time. And he said, I, I'm sorry. I wish I could help. And he said, no, that's okay. At least you spoke to me. The others didn't. There's power in just listening. I appreciate what Jane Kennedy said. She said when she was ministering to her mother who had Alzheimer's, she said people would say, why is it that you spend so much time with her? Why is it that you give so much of your presence to her? She's not going to remember who you are. And she said, she may not remember who I am, but I'm going to minister to her soul in the present. Do something special for someone. It'll be part of the process in sensitizing yourself again to the needs of others. And then seek the heart of God and ask God to break your heart for what breaks His. And I think we know some of the things that already break the heart of God. Injustice and poverty and violence and greed and prejudice and poor stewardship of the earth and, and murder and and. And ambivalence toward others. Maybe we need to pray, Lord, give me a holy discontent. Engage me in the lives of others. God, help me to have a passion for you and compassion for others. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Well, they noticed that she was not coming to the window. And they enjoyed sending messages, harmless messages, back and forth. And so the four of them went down and they said, Look, I know that you can't give us information. I know legally you have to protect medical information. But there is a girl on the third floor who's real special to her, us, and her name is Lisa. 
can you tell us anything about Lisa? And they said, well, all I can say is that Lisa has gone to ICU. She's no longer in that room. And so they said, well, look, we'll do it the safe way. Through you, we want to be able to do something special. And so they sent balloons and flowers, cards. And a couple of days later, there was a poster on the window where she had been, and it said, Lisa has died. Thank you for caring. John Horton, Anthony McPhail, myself, um, some of the other staff, sometimes we'll have people come through the office. We don't get a whole lot of this because we're not real close to the interstate, but uh, they're need-based. They, they have needs, and, and we feel like most of them are legitimate. And, uh, and one of the things we try to do is listen to their story. And that seems real important. And then we may give them some financial assistance. And some of them are overwhelmed. Some of them are. I mean, their families are wrecked. They have nothing to their name. And they're moving from place to place. And I remember one of them saying, not too long ago, you know, sometimes I don't feel like people care. And I said, sure people care. We care. We're a church. People care. Name somebody, the person said. Could I give them your name? Let's pray together. God, we, uh, oh man, you've got so much work to do with us, and we thank you that your grace is a grace that says, I'll pick up right where you're at. I'm going to move you forward. I'm with you in the journey. We thank you that you're making us to be more and more like you, even though we are resistant to that, and at times indifferent to you and to others. And so stir us, God. Resensitize us, most of all through your Holy Spirit, that we might embody goodness and kindness and gentleness in the ways you did. Help us not to be a barrier to you, but a blessing. in your name we pray. Amen.